Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, this special series on the New Books Network that's about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, host of the series. Today, I'm very happy to welcome back to the program Bill Cope and Mary Kalanzis, curators of the website New Learning Online, and also professors of the College of Education at the University of Illinois. The website New Learning Online has an intriguing subtitle, Works and Days. If you're familiar with the Greek poet Hesiod, you'll recognize the title of his poem. Bear with my Greek a moment, but I may never get this chance again on radio. So here goes, Erga ke imere. That is, of course, Works and Days. In the beginning, mortal people lived as if they were gods, their hearts free from all sorrow and without hard work or pain. Now, things have fallen off since those early days, as we are all quite aware, but it's nice to think back, just as it's nice to think forward. Because in my understanding, that is the message of this homage to our mythical origins, namely, that the ways we live may have been different, and certainly will be different again. Bill Cope and Mary Kalanzis want us to take a critical but also an analytical view of the things and of the acts which constitute our everyday lives, and they want us to so that we can think about change, and wherever or whenever such change means a better life, they want us to enact it. Now, which moments of our everyday life or our non-everyday lives are more important than the moments that we spend learning? Sure, you might think spontaneously the moments that we spend eating to nourish ourselves, or the moments we spend loving to sustain ourselves, or the moments we spend creating to express ourselves. I agree, all those moments are very important, but what if you viewed them all under the heading, learning? Does that work? Can you make a categorization like that? To an extent, yes, I think you can. Just think, anything you do, essentially you've learned to do. You've learned to hold a fork, you've learned to cook healthier, you've learned to shop organically and fairly. You've also learned to overcome your fears of commitment, of intimacy, of betrayal. And you've also learned how to read and to write and to listen. What creativity is possible without those skills? Learning can rightly be considered, if not above, then definitely integral to so much we do. Perhaps nearly all we do that is human and humane. Learning is, as Bill and Mary's website announces, the subject matter of new learning online. Learning new. So what is new about the learning on Bill Copes and Mary Colanzi's site? What is new about this evolving body of research and thinking in the fields of semiotics, literacy, pedagogy, and educational technologies? A lot. A lot, though not always in the sense of originary, though there's definitely some of that too, Bill and Mary have not needed or wanted to reinvent the wheel of learning, but much, much, very much new in the sense of reassessing, reconsidering, 
revisiting, and the sense of applying and constructing and overhauling in order to make out of what is there the things we need for new situations. The world as it is sets the tone and the pace for what Bill and Mary research, because any theory which fails to give sufficient account of the world and of the ways we really and truly are living today, that theory fails to fail. The research Bill and Mary, the research by Bill and Mary, the research made available on their site, New Learning Online, which research is generously shared and added to with text, with video, with images, multimodality basically. All this research is research into how things are, how it really is that children learn to read and write, how it really is that we come to know the things we know, how it really works or doesn't when we go to spread our knowledge via script or image or gesture or word of mouth. New Learning Online by Bill Cope and Mary Kalanzis invites visitors to engage with the focuses of their research. Multimodal meaning, literacies, e-learning ecologies, collaborative learning, life-embedded learning, and learning by design. Bill and Mary have taken up the advancements in these fields and have themselves advanced these fields again. And Bill and Mary's Common Ground Scholar is one example of their research in the world. CGS Scholar is a learning platform. That is, it's a class engagement space and a collaborative workspace and a multimodal web portfolio and a means for the design and the delivery of interactive courses. Bill Cope and Mary Kalanzis have something new here, New Learning Online, a website teeming with new ideas and new possibilities and new projects, a space that draws inspiration from myth to give design to reality. Scholarly Communication, this special series on the New Books Network, is the podcast about how knowledge gets known. We talk to educators and to editors, to writing academics and to reading academics, to those identifying with scholarship and to those identifying with communication, and of course, to those identifying with both, because scholarly communication aims to be the plus sign between both. Scholarly communication is about scholarship, about the research, the work, and the instruction in writing. And scholarly communication is about communication, about the selection, the production, and the dissemination of knowledge. Wherever writing Knowledge Connect, there the communication of scholarship is taking place, and there too we at Scholarly Communication have our place. So let's begin today's episode. Bill Cope and Mary Kalanzis and New Learning Online. Bill, Mary, welcome to Scholarly Communication. Thank you for inviting us into that very generous introduction. Yes, uh, Daniel, that uh, was very comprehensive. Much okay. Um, when... Uh, you visit your site and look through all the uh, research and uh, information and interaction that's possible there. You notice, as you also state quite clearly at one point, that your long-standing concerns are with learner diversity and generally with pedagogy or simply just learning. Um, I would like perhaps if both of you could maybe personally and biographically give us an idea as to how that came about. Right. Okay. I'll start, Daniel. Well, you know, um, I, I want to say this up front. We're collaborators, and that makes this that's the sort of foundation for everything we're going to discuss with you. Bill and I have been collaborators since we met at the university, at Macquarie University, as students, and we collaborate uh, with many other people across all those different topics that you can find on our website. 
So I think collaboration is really critical if you're going to address the complex issues that the new means for us now, right? So I want to just make that first as a kind of introductory point. Uh, The other thing is that, you know, we believe that humans are creative, right? Uh, That is in their species nature to be creative and they can go in all sorts of directions with that creativity. And we are determined, as you quite rightly said, because we're born into communities, right? But we are also determining by our knowledge and the choices that we make. And we do argue that this moment, there is something uh, each moment, because the, the new occurs periodically through history as, as conditions change, but the new of the moment requires more collaboration than ever before to address the global uh, challenges of, of our time uh, and understanding that we need to be uh, ongoing learners, that learning does not end with our socialization, but our choices, which then will impact on others. So, I mean, one of the phrases we use in terms of what our agenda is and what motivates us is the phrase balance of agency. So we know in the world there have been all sorts of um, incredibly fraught, unbalanced agencies. So you you mentioned works and days. Um, Hesiod's one of our heroes who was somebody who, well, the first writer who spoke in any way about ordinary the ordinariness of everyday life but the society in which Hesiod lived was a slave society where the agency of non-citizens of slaves of women uh, a whole pile of categories and don't forget slaves were often people who had been captured so there were people who were not Greeks a lot of the time some of them were Greeks some of them weren't so what there was in that society the Hesiod society was a whole lot of victors of unbalanced agency, to use that phrase, inequality, um, uh, but also not just inequality, but the control of one person by another, right? So if you want to talk about what our underlying agenda is in the work that we do, it's um, when we come along to modern times, we find a whole lot of examples pervasively in everyday life of lacks of balance between people who are rich and people who are poor, between bosses and workers. But one of the great unbalances is the hierarchical structure of, of, um, of learning, of education, where, in fact, you know, the, the kind of early modern traditional education of the, the, the education of institutionalised schooling in its mass form from the 19th century was had, had a, a set of discursive relationships which were... Um, uh, between teacher and student, between textbook writer who had knowledge and the person reading it, um, a whole lot of discursive relationships which, if you like, reproduced the unbalances, um, lack of balances of agency in the world. So one of the things we're thinking about, okay, we don't want a world where, um, you know, the, the, the teacher is just simply a facilitator. Of course, the teacher knows a pile of things. Um, but what a teacher does is facilitates an environment where the learners are equally agents, where they're researching things, where they're speaking to things, they're thinking things through, they're active makers of knowledge because these are the relationships um, of unbalanced agency, position people passively as recipients, as people who can be dominated, people who can be told things, people who will accept wisdoms 
because someone else is wise and they're not, right? So what we want to do is then change the role of the teacher, rebalance the agency in the classroom where the agency of the teacher is a specific person is very, very important. And the agency of the knowledge, um, the ex knowledge expert is very, very important, but it never erases the active agency of the learner as somebody who is appropriating that knowledge and, and building on it. So that's kind of, if you, if you want a kind of a, a set of themes we've been working on um, for a long time now across the work that we've been doing, both in the theoretical work, but also in something like the Scholar Platform, which is a platform where we aim to build these kind of um, dialogical social relationships. Yes, the Scholar Platform, Daniel, is, is, is an attempt to realise uh, what we uh, claim uh, are the affordances of the digital for new learning. And, uh, you know, you know we're in America now. I mean, we started this work when we were in Australia, working as Australians. But power continues to be either an enabling or a kind of a barrier. And uh, when we were invited to come to the United States and the University of Illinois, one of the reasons we took it up was uh, because America has been so influential in uh, determining uh, fashions and uh, approaches to education that have influenced the rest of the world. So we thought if we uh, came and joined a group of people at the U of I in the College of Education uh, with the resources that are uniquely available to scholars in America, which weren't available to us in Australia, um, uh, that perhaps uh, these ideas uh, can uh, find a firmer footing and kind of thrive. And the two things that we brought that we thought needed rethinking, right, is this thing about diversity. And Bill talked about it in a more complex way than the way in which diversity, in, at least in this country and elsewhere, is thought of around kind of ethnic backgrounds. Uh, diversity is a much more complex issue, but in any learning environment, all the learners, no matter what, where they come from, bring that diversity into the classroom. And it is an asset, not a barrier. And that needs to be recognised, as Bill said. The other thing, you mentioned the other thing was pedagogy, but it's in fact the affordances of the new technology for pedagogy and for learning and for agency. We actually do believe uh, that, uh, that we're allowed to do things or we're enabled to do things if we design and harness the technology in order to uh, change the balance of agency, in order to allow voice, in, a, in order to allow collaborative uh, learning. And that's what Scholar is. This, I mean, we can preach that, and we do in our work and books, and we do research about how important it is to, uh, you know, performance, you know, identity and time on task equals performance is a cliche. You know, these things are important. But the first generation of, you can call them learning platforms or uh, or you can call them, you know, software, uh, were, were, did not address the affordances for the values we have in education. Um, they were on the margins of education. But, of course, COVID has thrown that all, you know, kind of up in the air as everybody had to engage with the affordances of the digital, but only in the forms that, exist that aren't always satisfactory. So we put our effort into working with others, you know, um, 
philosophers, English majors, computer scientists, uh, educators, principal to design uh, the, the scholar platform. And we're continuing to test it. You know, we teach in it, uh, we work in it, and we're continually testing and improving it. And we think we educators have to join with engineers in creating the tools, not just taking the tools produced for business purposes or for entertainment and massaging them to use them with learners, with old pedagogy. I mean, that doesn't advance um, knowledge uh, making uh, in ways that it needs to for this very complex moment. Yeah, this very complex moment is is uh, something that you bring up in uh, on on uh, new learning online, and what you're both referring to now. You also have a long view, though, as 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 Bill was just saying, uh, from new from basically early modern times, the um, the old pedagogies, as you were saying, where let's say obedience and discipline come before uh, creativity and collaboration. Uh, but I. I I do want to certainly hear more about uh, Common Ground Scholar in in a more detailed fashion, but let's just come back to this idea of right now and even COVID, which has just thrown so much into relief because I think it sort of encapsulates a lot of what you're saying and perhaps you can respond to that. Because what I see is that the teachers who, need to, who needed to step in front of the webcam because they couldn't go into the classroom were bringing the classroom with them in front of their webcams and carrying on as usual. In other words, the affordances that you speak of weren't necessarily, in all cases, used to the fullest. And also, the other thing that seems to be happening that is also relevant with COVID, if it's shown us anything, it's shown us that inequalities or people controlling other people are as bad or worse than we thought. And it seems that there is a structure in the tech, there's, excuse me, there's a structure in the society, there's a way of thinking about collaboration, which sometimes, especially in a learning context, is seen as suspect. Somebody is trying to take something away from the group and claim it as theirs and then it can pass a certain assessment a degree can be gotten and so on from it but um, that's clearly not the kind of collaboration that we're talking about here that you're trying to foster um, so to bring this bit of a diverging <laughs> way of talking down to a point i guess that the technology and the society have structures that are not breaking and people are not necessarily seeing what else they might do yes i mean um Let's just take what happened with the first wave of applications of um, these technologies to education, which is essentially com you know, computerization, network computerization. Let let's call it that, which has in fact been a uh, you know a fifty year project now. It's not as if it happened the day before yesterday. Um, it's been happening over you know roughly half a century, perhaps a bit more even. So um, one of the things that happened was in a first wave we took those hierarchical knowledge relationships um, and we simply put them into these digital environments. So, for example, um, one of the big things that's happened is video lectures. Okay, there are some good and interesting things about video lectures, but the lecture form, um, in fact, is a form of knowledge which I'm going to say was invented by St. Benedict 1,500 years ago um, in the creation of Western monasticism. And, and what St. Benedict did, in setting up the 
if you like, what became the college system in universities, they were originally monasteries, um, was set up a discursive relationship where famously, in the words of St. Benedict, it becometh uh, the master to speak and the disciple to sit silently and listen, right? So the assumption is, you know, you don't know much, um, you know, I'm the master, I've got a pile of stuff, and you sit and listen. So what we did with video lectures and, you know, the, the MOOC environment's a very good example of this, which is essentially a video lecture environment, is we reproduce that relationship with a couple of small interesting nuances. The interesting nuances you can watch, turn the video on when you want to, um, um, you can slow it down, you can speed it up, you can skip bits, you can listen to bits a second time. So there are a couple of interesting nuances in that which give a little bit more agency um, to the learner than a traditional lecture. But, um, but nevertheless, the, under, the fundamental form is the same. Um, you know, we move from the printed textbooks of early, earlier modernity, and by the way, the textbook as a form was essentially invented in the 16th century by uh, a very interesting person, um, the most forgotten, most highly published person of early modern times, a man by the name of Petrus Ramus, who, who divided this idea of dividing the world up into little chunks of transmittable knowledge, um, starting from simpler ideas and moving to more complicated ones and, and, and so on. So um, anyhow, the textbook went from being a print textbook to uh, chapter six of an e-textbook, which is in week three of a, a, of, a, of a, a syllabus in a learning management system. So the underlying model, which is a transmission model of knowledge, not about balancing agency, um, but about a deeply unbalanced agencies of knowledge, where you learn to be a passive recipient of knowledge that's told to you to be the definitive knowledge in terms of which you must obey. So what we've tried to do with Scholar is actually change that balance where the teacher is still incredibly important, but what the teacher is doing is, yes, perhaps doing a little video here and there which says something, but then getting the students to make videos of their own, um, getting the students to act in dialogue. So the video doesn't just tell, the video tells then asks, and the dialogue between the students is, if you like, the co-design of an e-learning ecology of an intellectual community. So in other words, the students become, um, as agents, they become participants in knowledge community and not recipients of transmitted knowledge. So what we've tried to do, and, and actually, you know, with Scholar taking all the lessons from social media, it's actually the same transition from the newspaper to the social media, the same kind of trans transition, is try and build a thing where there is as much uh, writing as reading, as much speaking as listening. And that's what we mean by balance. Yes, you've got to listen still and you've got to read still, which is this business of knowledge is presented to you by experts and knowledgeable people and maybe peers as well. But that should be dialogical, A, and B, where you are expected to do as much of the active production of meaning as the passive reception of meaning, not that any uh, reception is entirely passive ever. But that's the kind of thing we've tried to do. And the interesting thing about the social media, is they give us a model of how to do that and a platform with which to do it. So I'll get back to Scholar also later, but you can see from the way we're talking that we do two things. One is uh, we do research and write and, and theorise about the world, uh, meaning-making and learning and, and, and building some of that now so that people understand uh, what context uh, has influenced uh, what they 
learned as professional educators uh, in whatever context they are. But on the other hand, we have to become involved now, not just in writing the textbooks or the lectures, but create uh, harnessing that uh, the affordance of the technology. So we as educators have to collaborate with other people to create now the learning ecologies, right? And that's what Scholar is. But just to go back to your point about COVID, the truth is it's the most extraordinary experiment in a sense uh, that across the globe uh, in education where everybody was thrown out of the classroom and out of those traditional relationships. But you are quite right. They carried them in their heads and in their practices in whatever tool was available to it. And mostly it's Zoom or some kind of transmission uh, model like that. And the effect has been quite negative for students in many cases and for the educators uh, who are all saying they can't wait to get back to the golden standard of in-person education within the four walls of the classroom. However, I'd like to kind of, you know, kind of put the case that nobody's ever going to go back from the affordances that they've been forced to realise. You know, ubiquitous learning, learning anywhere, anytime. You know, it's not just within the period of the classroom. Um, the possibility of collaborating, you know, even in the Zoom space when you have, you know, little panels with everybody coming together and talking. There are some features of what everybody has been forced to experience, which is going to perhaps, we hope, you know, allow the possibility of rethinking how meaning is made, particularly in terms of multimodal constructions, you know, that learners can upload a video, they can upload an audio, they can construct easily quite complex artefacts of meaning uh, as part of any any subject, whether it's math or history or whatever. So they, this in, uh, global kind of shift um, allows those who want to to take up the lessons uh, and to see how we can build a way of preparing learners for a world where individual hero scholars can't solve problems. You know, in the old days, it was an individual leader or an individual scholar or an individual, you know, this idea that, you know, the world would change as a consequence of the ideas or vision. But now, you know, we have learned as a consequence of this kind of weird experiment that people want to intervene. They want to have their own voice, you know, whether it's through making their podcasts or uh, intervening in a Zoom uh, by uh, by bombing it, you know. Uh, I mean, the, the possibilities of engagement have been expanded. So how do we harness those? Well, we started doing that even before COVID with Scholar because that's where we thought the world needed to go. And we talk about repertoires. It, it's not an either-or. You know, what educators need are repertoires from in-person to online to hybrid you know, how do we harness the resources of the moment for the values of education, which is to contribute to, you know, better citizens, better learners, you know, more uh, confident uh, workers. And in better citizens, you know, how do you uh, participate in society in order to create a world that is more just and more fair? 
Um, so we think there are uh, there are possibilities, and we've tried to put our money where our mouth is, so to speak, by using Scholar. And I'll, I'll add one more thing to what Bill said about Scholar. We evaluate learners as they go, right? This idea that copying from each other or cheating or, you know, is, is completely removed from the Scholar platform. You actually get graded on the degree to which you help each other, right? We, you get graded on the degree to which you are engaged with your peers and collaborate. And you also get graded on the knowledge that you produce. But those three areas are of equal weight and they happen as you go, not at the end, you know, where the grade is just a label of whether you're, at, you know, usually on some kind of bell curve. Um, so if you don't crack assessment, you can't crack pedagogy. And uh, in the scholar environment, we have introduced um, the tools Right, we've invented the tools that allow the learner to get instant, or not almost instant, feedback uh, uh, through peer-to-peer and through other kind of um, you know tools that we that that, that we've invented uh, as they go, as they need it. Right, um, and and at first, when the students come into this environment. They are used to just working on their own. They are used to being competitive. They are used to the teacher being the authoritarian. So it takes a while also for the students to understand that their own self-interest and the interest of the community is to become different types of learners, you know, different kinds of citizens, uh, different kinds of uh, actors in the world, uh, and that everybody benefits from that, right? And that in our programs, all learners can achieve any result they want if they just continue to work on uh, the uh, requirements of, of the course in any time that they need. I mean, we do have a you know a time in which the course begins and ends, but we're very flexible about accommodating people who need more time, uh, you know, who have you know face troubles and can't complete or, or need whatever. So we've tried to change all those traditional infrastructure things uh, that created particular kind of people through didactic pedagogy and authoritarian um, uh, in, uh, ecosystems. Um, and we're testing it as we go. That's that's what I find one of the uh, interesting things, which I very ineloquently was trying to express earlier. This this idea of affordances and uh, scholar, for example, as you've just uh, described, and I'd, I'd like to maybe have a quick run through in a moment as to how maybe a lesson would work, so that our listeners can get a view as to what this program actually looks like, this platform looks like. But um, the point I was trying to make is what what you address there when you say um, with students needing a time of adjustment to see actually what's going on now in this new learning um, ecology, as you might say, or new learning environment, uh, the structures in their head are not catching up necessarily with the structures or the infrastructures of the technology that's being put before them. And it still seems that so much of society, and this is what I was trying to say with the COVID situation, um, has a a level of suspicion toward new learning um, possibilities. There is 
yeah, sounds nice, but we're going to carry on as, as we have. Or this idea, well, sure, you can do that after you've proven yourself, right? As if it, as if it wasn't real learning, let's say. That's all nice and good. but And I wonder, it seems to come down to the fact, I, I guess, I mean, you'll know um, for sure, but it seems to come down to the fact of really, truly recognizing affordances. That, that, would, that seems to be one of the points that's sort of crystallizing for me. Would, would that sound oh. about right? Yeah, no, that, that is about right. And let me just say something about affordances. The nice thing about the idea of affordance is this balance between possibility and constraint, right? So what technologies do, they shape what is possible in communicative terms and they put certain boundaries around that. There are certain constraints. There are certain forms that... That the, the, the technology produces. So that, that that's one aspect of it. But the other thing is, you know, they also open out new possibilities, new ways of relating. So again, in the other parts of our social lives, we've discovered phenomenal changes um, going on. And you know, the classic one is traditional broadcast media toward to social media. And social media's characteristics, um, you know, if, if the traditional media was broadcasting, this is, if you like, narrowcasting. No two of our feeds are the same, but which is a monumental change in terms of diversity, but also participation on that side of things. You know, when I read the newspaper, I'm a passive recipient. And, you know, I might, the occasional person might once in their life decide to write a letter to the editor, but, um, you know, it's not really a dialogical form. Whereas um, social media, I can comment on stuff. I can see other people's comments on stuff. I can post stuff. I can, you know, I can post news if you like, even if the news is just what I ate yesterday. So, you know, this is a huge shift. Now, the funny thing about education is that shift hasn't happened yet. You know, when Zoom lessons, uh, the teacher lectures through Zoom for half an hour and then one learner speaks at a time and asks questions like the Q&A at the end of the lecture, um, you know, when learning management systems transmit content and have a test at the end to see what you've remembered, those traditional discursive as well as learning relationships have been reproduced. So the affordance stuff is, okay, we've got this technology and we can do the same old stuff we've already we've always done. But the question that Mary and I ask is then, in terms of possibility, there are new things which we could be doing, which a lot of the time we don't do. And what are those new things? So one of them is this participatory um, idea, the idea of rebalancing agency such that you are as much active producers of knowledge as, as you are consumers, and that's taking a lesson out of the the, the book of social media. Um, uh, the other is, as Mary says, um, this incremental approach to learning, whereas rather than just, you know, okay, listen to the lectures, read the textbook, and then at the end of the semester we're going to do a test and the answer is B+. So the feedback cycles are very are slow, laborious, inefficient. And by the way, the test is a very limited sample of what you know. It's an hour or two where you've got to kind of reproduce whatever you've remembered. Now, whereas what we can do is forget about remembering. You know, we don't need that so much anymore because we can always look things up. But what we can be doing along the way is we can be building these dialogical structures where the feedback is contributing to your, your learning. So the distinction is in assessment terms, a move from summative assessment, which is kind of end of program judgmental stuff, to formative assessment, which is during program, highly incremental, highly recursive formative assessment. 
And then, by the way, at the end, we can look at your progress retrospectively, which is summative, but all the assessment will have been formative along the way. So we can learn that from the logic of these new media. Now, to apply that to education involves a huge change in teaching practices, in that the role of the teacher changes in, in a myriad of ways, um, but also um, it changes what the learner has to do. And, of course, there are institutional resistances. That's cultural inertia. But if in other realms of life, like media, for example, we've experienced these huge changes in a fraction of a lifetime, well, we're trying to imagine what the next fraction of a lifetime in education could be in terms of using these affordances, the possibility of these technologies to do this. Now, what are the underlying um, um, technology bits? Well, one is managing extraordinary social complexity, which is you know, peer interaction, peer review, peer commenting. Um, um, so what social media does is manage an unusual, unusually complex um, uh, set of social relationships, which traditional media could never do. So we can move that to the classroom. A deeply complex interactive sociability, which is beyond the immediate intervention of one teacher. But also there's this realm which is called learning analytics and big data, where if, if you're operating in the digital environment, we can be data mining all your work, uh, and not because we're interested in surveillance, um, uh, but because it's, a, it's an environment where we're data mining your work to give you incremental feedback, peer feedback, machine feedback, and whatever, but we want a, a view of your, an incremental view of your progress so we can intervene in the minute it's needed, um, where we can, um, uh, so, and, and where, and by the way, this is a vision where the learning analytics data is accessible to every student, obviously to themselves, not the whole class, um, and that really there's nothing the teacher sees which the student is not able to see themselves immediately, right? So in other words, it's a democratic data environment where everybody is accessible, has that data accessible. So for us, these are big shifts and these underlying affordances will allow us to change education in a fundamental way. And it's the first change since St. Benedict in 5.30 and since Petrus Ramus in 1560, right? Um, you know, where, when these discursive forms were invented, that, that's, that's roughly, you know, that we, we like to think of these as things in narrative historical terms. So this is the first shift in education um, uh, and it's enormously significant. So we want to try and think through how that would work. But, but Daniel, you are very right that there's a lot of suspicion you know, because people are used to certain uh, standards and certain ways of behaving and certain ways of relating from kindergarten on, you know, uh, and that's from the point of view of the teacher and the educator. Like we are currently, I'll give you an example, also working with um, uh, a, a medical school here in uh, Illinois and this med there are some professors in the school that recognise that uh, diseases aren't the same for everybody, that the, every, every individual experience a disease, you know, in their bodies in different ways, uh, that information is just in time, uh, that uh, you need to have a team to kind of diagnose and, and treat individuals, right? And uh, you now have uh, a technology that, you know, does surgery, you know, kind of robotically, etc. And they said, well, how are these kind of understandings and shifts, how are they demonstrated back in the curriculum? 
And the truth is, they're not there. They're not in the curriculum, and nor does most, nor do most of the students or the professors want to uh, uh, connect them because they're used to uh, a set of ontologies set by some external body that everybody has to learn. Uh, the, the learners learn them off by heart. Then they have multiple choice, multiple choice uh, questions uh, which they can mark, and they call this scientific because it's it's kind of very narrow and very specific, and you progress that way to become a medical practitioner. Well, that might have been okay in the past, but you're not preparing medical practitioners for as we say, the complexities and the realities of today, which require collaboration, which require just-in-time information, which require the use of technology. So there's a gap between what actually is happening in the world and the way in which the education system prepares for it. And we can say that across many disciplines as well. That, that, that is where we are, as Bill said, education has been the slowest, if you want to call it, site uh, that uh, to shift in uh, harnessing the affordance of the technology. They've had to do it by COVID, right? COVID forced them into it, but in very begrudging ways and with inadequate tools. And we don't know what the uh, implications of that is. So I... what, what we've tried to do with Scholar is demonstrate that it's possible, to demonstrate what we say theoretically is possible. And... Uh, um, you know, it's not an easy task. No, no. And I mean, I can give an example from my own end, which uh, entirely backs up what you just said in your uh, um, work or collaboration together with the uh, medical school there. I teach writing to uh, biologists here, and they have all kinds of questions when they're writing experimental protocols or their master's thesis. Um, I need to say I here because my PI told me to because this is getting graded, but we actually did this as a group. And uh, questions of, okay, well, how do I acknowledge that this person in the lab did this work or that work because this needs to get graded? In other words, they're being taught how to write for two years and then they're never going to go back to that form of writing again because biology is always done in a team. There's no other way. Yes, yes, there you go. It's like that across the system. It's a hard system to shift. That's why kind of our maybe vain hope is that COVID might have knocked on the door of, you know, administrators and people in power uh, that who might decide that you need to invent new tools, to experiment with new tools, to harness the affordances of the digital. Um, and we as academics... Uh, need to be part of that experiment. I, I suppose that's what we're trying to say to you uh, and what you'll find in our website, that we move backwards and forwards through philosophy, through issues around intercultural understanding, because you need to understand human human behaviour and, and meaning-making, to pedagogy and technology and affordances. And we move backwards and forwards. We shut backwards and forwards across those domains. And then, you know, work with, collaborate with people to create the new tools, right? Not just to massage tools that were never made for the purposes of uh, learning and the values of learning. So, so speaking, 
Oh, uh, so I was just going to say, uh, uh, since I've been uh, announcing this and announcing this, speaking of, of of the tools and Scala, you've said quite a lot about it, but is it possible that you, uh, I know, for instance, online, uh, there are videos which give a view as to how it might be used in a writing exercise. And I would certainly uh, send all of my listeners uh, to the page uh, to get a full view of what it is that Mary uh, Kalanzis and Bill Cope are doing, but is it possible that you gave us a quick, uh, how a quick, quick assignment might work? Description. Okay. Just before I do, I was just going to say one kind of point is that our agenda in this is um, on the one hand, it's kind of a social, moral, political agenda about a world where people are more participants in knowledge and therefore in their, their lives, they're more actively involved and more, so it's a kind of a model, if you like, of a certain kind of citizenship, which we would like in a world which is less unequal. That's the moral political side of it. One of it is just pragmatic. I mean, these old pedagogies are just not working in, you know, they're not appropriate to what's required for, say, medical students these days. You know, these cybersecurity, policing. Yeah, you know, everywhere you know we go, it. everywhere we go, we say, we think, oh, my goodness, these things are so anachronistic, even if you've got the, you know, the most conservative apolitical motives in the world what you're doing is just just not appropriate it just doesn't work it's a darn waste of time so anyhow let me just talk about the scholar thing i'll, I'll just give a quick description of it and a description of some spaces right so what scholar is it's a series of apps um uh, which and the apps by the way simply reflect the fact that we've had a number of projects over the years to, to do this work and different projects have achieved different things so one app is um, a space we call community, which is essentially the space of classroom discourse. And what's different from this uh, to lecturing and regular classroom discussion is, okay, the teacher might post a video, um, a, a short video, which might be, you know, the flip classroom kind of idea, a little lecture, but always orienting to discussion, which is, okay, look, this is what we're thinking, What? how would you add to these thoughts? So dialogical. But also, this is a space where, in the same way the teacher can post uh, a video or a bit of text or whatever, which is, a, the students can do it as well. So they can become co-contributors of content. They re re research things. Um, so in other words, they are equally involved in the, the participation process. And we process. call them communities. And we call that a community, right? <laughs> um, and by the way, unlike regular classroom discourse where the teacher you know, ask a question and then the, the student put up their hand. Only one person can answer. This is a space where we say everyone must answer, right? And the minute you say that, it's not guessing the right answer that's in the teacher's head. You discover nuances of difference, right? And they can it's answer a, a in any they can, they can put a video up. They can put audio up. They can write. They, you know, we, we encourage multimodal ways right. of expression. In fact, in our classes, we insist. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we say, you know, um, um, you know, that it should be this. Okay, that's area number one, which space. is which is the community space, which is classroom discourse. That's what it equivalent is. Equivalent to it. Yeah, the, the, the equivalent of that. Okay, the second space is a space that we call creator, which is unlike Google Docs. So it's a Google Docs type environment. The Google Docs is the, the damn chaotic jumping cursor, which is it's a shambles. It's not really organized in a way which is susceptible for structured learning. So what we do in, it's a, it's a split screen where the left side of the screen is a multimodal work where, again, you can embed any media on the left, not just video, but also you know, GitHub code or anything, any digital media you can embed, and you write around that. So it's essentially a, a writing space. You can do math in this space where you write around 
um, um, uh, chemical, um, sorry, medi um, mathematical formulae. So in other words, it's a writing space for any of these subjects. Multimodal writing, multi writing space. On the right-hand side is structured social dialogue. So one part of the structure is assessment rubrics. Okay, this is in general terms what intellectually we want you to be achieving on the left-hand side, um, but also um, uh, a versioning system where, in fact, the first version gets kept. This is what's missing from the chaotic Google Docs. Um, because what happens is peers then take that rubric and they write against that structured feedback. And they also do annotations as well. Um, so annotate, To each other. Annotations. And, and by the way, these annotations, if they're coded, our long-term ambition with these, and just let me, I hope people, Ted, don't spin at this moment, but those who know what we're talking about will know what we're doing. The coding we want to use for machine learning so the, the machine can learn from the annotations that students are making and make useful feedback going forward. So this is the kind of artificial intelligence space that we've been pushing into. So there are the two sides of the screen. It's kind of a dialogue between, on the left, a specific piece of work, on the right, social dialogue, uh, reflective thinking. Um, and what we do is it goes to a number of versions, including a self-review. Okay, I took on board these people's comments in version, the one before, I've added them to this version. And then what happens is we have this notion of publication where everything is social knowledge. Nothing is you just handing it to the teacher and we're judging you as an individual. It's social knowledge around uh, we have the provenance of all your ideas because you've acknowledged that, that learner A has taken an idea from learner B and it's been really helpful to them. So it's, um, um, it's social in that sense, but it's social in the sense that the final knowledge production becomes shared in the class. So, so we no, have a, no secrets. There are so no, no secrets in this Every process. bit of knowledge is social knowledge, collaborative knowledge, knowledge that's going to be shared. And scaffolded. It's scaffolded so that the students, you know, can work autonomously on, on creating their multimodal right. artifacts. But the scaffold is there in the rubric, the scaffold is there in the peer-to-peer uh, -peer, uh, uh, expectations, the scaffold is there in the tracking of the performance, you know, in the uh, ESTA plot, that's what we call it. Right. That's what I'm going to come to next. Right. So we've now done two. Class community is classroom discourse. Creator is, if you like, you might call it project-based learning. Um, um, All of it collaborative. <laughs> uh, but, but in fact, it's social writing. Let's call it social writing um, for extended pieces of work. That's creator. Um, now, what I'll mention as a footnote, we also do have a, a module in here called Survey where you can ask select response um, questions um, um, because that's a tradition in education to do that and there are some things in the world where you can give a select response um, uh, response. There's also a supply response uh, area in, in. So what we've got is we've got all the canonical forms of educational activity, if you like classroom discourse, uh, writing up projects, um, 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 these things we call surveys. But then, um, Mary was just beginning to mention this, we have another app which is called Analytics. And what that app does, it data mines everything that's happening in that class. And everyone, every student has what's called an ASTA plot. So what you have to measure is, what you have to imagine, I mean, is a, something like a daisy, an ASTA's a daisy, and all the petals different colours, and the petals grow as you are... Um, achieving what's measurable in each petal. Uh, the circumference of the circle, which is the full daisy, is 
what the teacher's expectations are. You start off with a, a, a black and white blank empty daisy and gradually you colour in the petals as the, the colour moves out. Each petal has explicit petal information about how you get Oh, by the way, you click on the petal and it tells you how the machine is actually coming Assessing. to that conclusion that you've got to that point. So we make all the underlying analytics, the data work, uh, explicit. Now, let me just say what that means is that by the end of a course, I'm going to give you an example now of a course that might have, say, 30 students in it, and it's an eight-week course, and they've done, you know, classroom discussion every week, they've done a couple of peer-reviewed projects, they've answered a couple of surveys uh, along the way. Um, there might be uh, one to two million data points. So a huge amount of complexity, which no teacher could, social complexity, um, and it, which no teacher could ever make sense of or ever orchestrate. But what we're doing is we're giving an incremental uh, um, view all the time of progress towards the learning objectives for every individual student and, to, and across the whole class as well. So in other words, what we're doing is we're using big data um, and learning analytics as an alternative feedback system. Now, what we say then is, okay, um, uh, the test is dead but long-lived assessment, right? So we have so much data from this. Why would you create a little sample of an hour or two at the end of a course when we can, from day one, be data mining every single thing you do? And by the way, by the end of the course, you know, we have these literally millions of data points, right? And for every student. Um, now, the other thing as well is that our argument is, um, and we call this recursive feedback, is that every little data point um, is a piece of actionable feedback. Someone makes a comment on what you do, you get a score from somebody on something or other against the Likert scale. Um, so what we're doing is we have this idea of complete data transparency, but also we're not going to make any judgments for you about you or the system's not going to do it without that feedback being actionable so that you can then improve your work. It feeds into your work. It's not a... So the difference is... Instead of assessment being retrospective and judgmental, which is you've got to be minus, you're not a very good person, uh, try and improve in the rest of your life, um, what we're doing is we're making micro-judgments which are prospective and constructive, right, and going towards uh, your learning. So the interesting thing for us then is what happens is that although people's progress is uneven, incrementally they come to a closer point in terms of uh, their outcomes. So if you let them into the course, it has to be assumed that, that you know, you must have thought they could do it. Well, we're, assessment is your friend. It's not your fear-making enemy. Um, and that we're going to use assessment to, to make sure that you succeed uh, in terms of what's possible, even if the progress is not at the same rate. Right. And the P2P part is, is a core to what we do. And our research and the research of others um, has demonstrated that peer-to-peer -peer feedback uh, is comparable uh, over time with expert feedback. So periodically we kind of do an analysis of, you know, the, the quality of the peer-to-peer. Of the -peer. But it takes a while for learners to value that. As you quite rightly say, they're suspicious of, of that. And, and it takes a while for them to be open to sharing with each other. In the synchronous sessions, so what we do, is people share their work publicly with us. We have synchronous sessions, uh, and we don't lecture in those synchronous sessions. People present their work, and 
to to each other and to us, and we get to discuss it in their work in that environment and the way that that work contributes to the knowledge to the curriculum. And the best works, uh, we well, everybody gets a portfolio with their work. So when they go out looking for a job, they, everything they've done is you know kind of on their portfolio. But the best works we also publish you know, in a bookstore, which is available to the world that can be shared. So from the beginning, we say you guys are working with us and gals to create knowledge collaboratively because, um, you know, you come from different backgrounds, you bring different experiences, you bring different voices, different perspectives to the same topic, right? And we want that to come through, not just our view of whatever the topic is that uh, you know, when we do our flip classroom and the videos and, and send you out content. Now, you know, it takes a couple of terms, doesn't it, Bill, for uh, folks to kind of switch onto the value of it. But by the time they get to the end of, an, you know, a master's program or a doctorate program, they're, um, you know, they've learned something, not about just about the content because we've, we've modelled the philosophy and features of, you know, our theoretical kind of teaching uh, in their experiences. So they ha we have this double thing that goes on. They are students and yet they are part of a research process as well. And, and in fact, everybody has to be like that at the moment because so much of what we do will need to be experimental. So let me say the range of possible types of use. I mean, Mary, we've been mostly speaking now about our students or education students. So we run... Um, a master's program and a doctoral program. We run a doctorate fully inside this space, including um, dissertations, which go through this kind of um, systematic peer review process. Um, we've, we've run it in medicine, we mentioned before, we've run it in, in engineering, um, that's at a higher education level, but also we've run it in schools, but quite a lot of work in the area of English language, um, teaching and learning. Um, down to about grade four. So we've had very cute things where grade four kids are, are doing animal projects, <laughs> um, choosing their favourite animal and peer reviewing each other's work or doing biographies of famous people. So, um, the, you know, the range of application is from about grade four up and we've tried to make it, you know, it's agnostic about the discipline area, any discipline area. But if you take the little kids' example, you know, maybe you're doing mammals, you know, and every little every little kid in that classroom, although it's the same topic, can choose whatever mammal they want to focus on. Right. So they're bringing content into uh, the curriculum process and sharing that with each other. And the science rubric then is, um, you know, how does one do an adequate description of a mammal? <laughs> My favourite mammal is this. Your favourite mammal is that. But the the meta level question, thinking in terms of disciplinary practice is, well, you talk about its life cycle, you talk about the environment that it's born in, you know, what's, um, that it lives in, um, and so on and so on and so on. What, what do you need to adequately account for the mammalness of a mammal, so to speak? And every child can do that through writing or drawing video. or videoing or, yeah. you know, using the multimodal Finding stuff on Nobody's YouTube. Nobody's left out and everybody you know, can participate in a quality way. Knowledge producers. Yep. <laughs> Um, I, th I think that's, uh, uh, I'm just blown away and I, I, I'm sure many of my listeners are as well. Um, I mean, talk about, uh, as you've been saying all along, using the affordances of technology. I mean, for example, just the data mining, um, 
made it perfectly clear that this is what technology can give us in education, right? I mean, uh, Bill made it crystal clear that, I mean, there's no way a human could get their head around all of that data, but all of that data added up with uh, the computing power that we have in our pockets is wonderful because it, it gives us the sort of recursive feedback that you've been talking about. Could, could you maybe bring us from the fourth grade up into the uh, dissertation level um, because this is a little closer to my heart here at uh, Scholarly Communication, and maybe just say a word or two as to, um, let's say, some of the barriers that you've noticed to that uh, program, that platform, Scholar working in that uh, environment, and some of the um, the pluses, some of the uh, benefits that are brought that uh, maybe even were unexpected. I'm not sure. Well, let's talk about the people side of it, because in our doctoral program, of course, we're saying that we're um, producing evidence-based researchers, evidence-based uh, scientists. You know, in our doctoral program, we do not want to know what people already know. We want to know what they've learned through engaging with each other and through the process, right? So, and that's very hard because sometimes people come into a doctoral program and they know exactly what they want to do from beginning to end, and they just want to start collecting data. And it's very hard to say no. First of all, you've got to go through the peer-to-peer. You have to learn from each other, you know, how you write a literature review, for example, how, how um, you know, how you use sources, how you speak from sources, not just from your opinions. And particularly in America, it's very hard to get people to move away from opinionated uh, expressions of meaning, which is, you know, an argumenting, either an expository essay rather than a literature review. So the peer-to-peer uh, is not only about the content, it's also about the genre that the, a dissertation requires. So, you know, we have the same kind of chapters that any uh, dissertation process has, but we scaffold it. We have what's called a six-stage dissertation uh, sequence, and uh, students go through each stage, and each stage requires uh, multimodality and peer-to-peer, this, this collaboration, um, and uh, by the time it gets to us as instructors, right, uh, there's very little that we have to do because the process itself uh, has imp- they have a, a number of iterations of each chapter as a consequence of this process. Um, and uh, so they go through uh, each stage and they li- on the Monday, there's two sessions on Monday nights where they uh, bring their work in progress and just discuss about it. In, they just discuss their work in progress in the synchronous sessions. They form their own little groups around affinities, you know, uh, online because they can. Uh, they, um, when it comes to exam time, uh, they uh, trial uh, their exam with each other before they come into the exam. So by the time we get to the end, you know, these are kind of fantastically uh, well-prepared uh, doctoral candidates, and we bring external people in, uh, of course, as, as we do everywhere in the examination process, and they're blown away by the quality of the work, the rigour of the work, the innovative nature of the work, and the pace at which they complete. Like, and one more thing I want to say is we believe we can get anybody to complete. You know, the job of an educator is to ensure that they can complete. So if somebody goes missing for a while, we try to figure out where they are. You know, have they had a family crisis? Can we bring them back in? So we are 
actually a community. And uh, one point, well, maybe before Bill goes on, this kind of work requires collaborative teaching, right? It does require a, t a team, you know, uh, teaching assistants plus faculty to work together. And that is very, very difficult in the academy for people to recognise that the affordances of new technology, if you want to exploit them to their fullest, requires teams of uh, 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 teaching assistants and faculty. So let me say something about the traditional doctorate. Um, it's often a very lonely experience where the, the advisor doesn't have a much much time to speak to you. Every now and then you do a pile of work and, you know, go and talk to them. But, um, um, but also it's kind of like the traditional, um, still like the traditional school where you write an essay and hand it in and get it marked, right? And what we're trying to do in the scholar environment by pushing the doctorate in the scholar environment is model what are the canonical social knowledge systems of our society. So in other words, you know, medical research goes through peer review, um, um, research project applications, if you're applying for funding, goes through peer review. So what the gold standard for independent knowledge creation is um, often anonymous peer review, sometimes known peer review in the case of anonymous, in the case of journal articles and, and the like, named in the, case, in the case of monographs or research programs. But that's the that, that that's how knowledge is validated, heavy duty. So one part of it is we have a an entirely conservative, conventional aspiration here, which is we want to model in our community um, uh, scholarly knowledge practices, and that includes giving useful reviews. How many reviews do you get which are not useful? Constructive reviews, um, acknowledging the the role of reviews in the collaboration process. So over this, as Mary says, it's a kind Sharing of sixth sources. Course. They share sources. They share ideas. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. And they, they acknowledge, and they acknowledge it. Yeah. So what happens is we then do the dissertation across, as Mary said, um, it's, it's actually a, we broke breaking the course, a six-course sequence, and which means there are six cycles of peer review. So you do, um, well, we actually start with, you know, what would in the conventional scheme of things be chapter two, which is the literature review. Um, um, in fact, we do a couple of bits of that, a general and a specific literature review. So these are cycles. But always what you're submitting is not the next bit, but the whole bit where the reviewer um, looks at the new part you've produced, but also you've written a change note about the, the original bits which you've revised in the process of writing the new bit. So there are kind of six increments along the way. And so it means that the process of writing the dissertation is very collaborative, very social. And they um, complete. In a way that ideally all intellectual work should be. We're not being radical revolutionaries. We're just changing the dissertation from being hand in an essay like a kid to be a knowledge worker like academics should be in a community of epistemic practice. And they can uh, seek uh, advising sessions from us at any time. Now, by the way, Mary and I started this program a couple of years ago. It's fully online, incidentally, and we have people all over the world um, who are taking it um, um, and who are part of the community. We have 154 doctoral students in our program. Hey, how's that? How many other professors do you know that have 140, 154 um, advisees? And three TAs. Um, we have TAs that help us, which, you know, they help manage the peer review process. There's kind of intricacy in that. And this team um, scholars who do reviews. It's for all us. in scholar. It's very, very multimodal. People put videos in the middle of what they're doing and, and um, 
and so on. So these are multimodal texts. Um, uh, but And actually, we have just now, the program we started a couple of years ago, and over the last six or eight weeks, we've graduated 12 doctoral students. Yeah, so right. how's that? We're, we're, pleased all, with we're also talking to the APA about citations for multimodal texts. And so we're in positive conversations with them about how, how you do it so that it's rigorous. Oh, yeah. Well, one challenge is how, yeah. how, how do you cite a video, yeah. right? Um, how do you cite a podcast? And, in fact, APA, American Psychological Association, which is the... American uh, um, the, citation. The, the, the citation system which is used um, commonly in education, for better or for worse. Um, uh, they don't have a way to, to you know, to, do that to, to have you cite videos or podcasts you might have put the video or the podcast in line inside your dissertation. How do you cite the darn thing? How do you then point to what you're talking Let's say it's a one-hour video that you put in the middle of your dissertation. Well, you need to say the same way you used to put page numbers for a quote, you know, page 46 to 47, you need to say, you know, 4 minutes, 80 to, four minutes 36 to 4 minutes 52 or something. So, in other words, we've had to develop protocols for multimodal knowledge representation which never existed before and don't even exist in the APA guidelines. So, um, uh, you know, that's been one of the challenges, by the way. And then we come to the university's depositing structure. Well, they want a darn PDF. PDF, my little slogan about PDFs, are the enemy of progress um, because, <laughs> you know, they're just they're darn page reproductions. I mean, what we have in Scholar is we have, um, you know, HTML. We have HTML5, a web page, whereas, you know, with APA, um, with, sorry, the you know, the PDF which came out of a Word file, you have this old-fashioned notion of the page. Well, nevertheless, we have to do that. So we have it kind of mirrored both in Scholar and then inside the PDF, um, which goes to the university, we have permalinks, which means if you get the darn PDF, you take the permalink and it takes you back to Scholar and you can see the real thing. And, you know, there's a genuine energy uh, around the collaborations, a genuine energy uh, about the peer-to-peer uh, uh, process, um, which uh, keeps the momentum, right? keeps people progressing, and it actually makes it easier for us as, right. you know, how could we have that many students uh, in the old model? If the, the community model, didn't have an energy baton. Yeah, you, should, you have to have no more than five uh, doctoral students, but our team can handle all of these uh, given the tools that we've put in place and the processes we've put in place. And I have to tell you, genuinely, the quality of the 12 who graduated are very, you know, like they're superior to any kind of uh, dissertation uh, in, a, in a face-to-face environment because of the rigour and the collaborative uh, um, input. Um. <laughs> I've had to bite my tongue so many times. There's so much information that's just come my way, and it's so wonderful. Um, I mean, what you were uh, saying very early on in the, um, I think it was you, Bill, who, who, who was saying that uh, your overall goals are a balance and agency, getting participation, but also very pragmatic. And you've just given us a slew of, uh, of facts and, and practices and, and, and things that have actually happened, which are on the pragmatic side. But I just can't stop thinking about your book, Adding Sense, and how this community that you're talking about, this uh, high-level achievement, this you don't have to worry about learning all the facts because you care about the facts. The areas of interest and in, in, in context make 
are the theoretical background, and again, please correct me if I'm off base here, are the theoretical background to your doctoral program? It's what's making it work. So they do our courses first, <laughs> you know, uh, and other courses, of course. So they, they get to know what our pedagogical purpose and our research purpose. We say from the beginning, you come into this program, you're part of our research, you know, because we are trying to kind of experiment with things and you have to help us, you know, understand. So we get feedback from them all the time because we're not going to move into the new world just by setting down something in stone again. We have to collaborate with our learners without um, disadvantaging them, right? Um, and they know that from the minute they enter, uh, that we're collecting data on them, uh, that, you know, they're in influencing us, uh, that they're helping each other, that they're becoming different kinds of uh, doctoral candidates, you know, when they're finished. And, you know, they come back to listen to each other. You know, when every time somebody goes for a defence, um, you know, there's about... 20 people that turn up to hear the defence, you know, just because they're interested, because we allow that. We allow people to observe uh, defence uh, experiences. And we're so proud of I have to tell you, it, there's an excitement at seeing them complete and an excitement about seeing the sense of uh, collaboration, the genuine collaboration and how they learn from each other. I think the other practical thing that, well, I was just talking about the theoretical side, but the, the practical thing that I really enjoy is, is what you said, Bill, that this is actually a conservative model, which which obviously strikes people in a, huh, how can that be conservative? But I mean, it is, and this is really one of the cruxes I find in education today that so many people are, are facing because of these old structures. I mean, it's just shocking that the APA, for instance, hasn't caught up on the citation practices or that university administrations insist on PDFs so that there's no collaboration in a biology uh, uh, dissertation, although the rest of your career is a collaboration. This idea of practicing as you're going to play because you're going to play as you practice. Why, why, do we why do we force our best researchers to make a leap into the world of real academia and real research and real industry? Right, right. Well, we are, each one of us needs to chip away at it. And uh, in the American context, you know, there's, I keep saying there's no real system about things. You know, it's viral. People kind of copy each other. So our hope is that if you keep putting things out in the world, it'll inspire somebody to uh, do something different or to use it or to modify it, you know. The, the other thing is actually what we kind of like doing is this mix of theory and practice. So if you like the, the Making Sense and Adding Sense books, uh, kind of theoretical books, trying to conceptualise what's happening in this world of uh, media in general, not just new media, but you know, historic media. What do these things mean um, in terms of the shape it gives to our lives and the shape it gives to the way we mean? So we do the theoretical stuff, but we also get our roll up our sleeves, and you know, we become involved in medical education, as 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 we just mentioned. We've just got two projects now. One which, you, as you can imagine, is going to be unbelievably important about police training in the United States, which is how do we do um, uh, police training in these online environments. Um, um, and another project we're doing now is about cybersecurity education, which is also, you know, absolutely cutting edge. You know, the solar winds thing that happened last week, somebody broke into a waterworks in Florida and started the process which would have poisoned people. So these are incredibly important real-world social issues 
So we've enjoyed um, the practice of getting across a number of domains. I mean, our education students themselves are across a lot of domains. And the other thing we've done, um, and it's been a great experience, is working with software developers in agile programming, programming environments. And we've learned a lot from that uh, and developed you know, ourselves the notion of agile research, which is you've got to do research which is not just objectives and outcome focused, but incremental and interventionary and whatever. So building Scholar itself has been uh, an experience. Well, how do you actually literally build these darn things? I mean, so many academics spend their time um, as armchair critics and, uh, and as users of stuff. But to be a maker of stuff, you actually see the world kind of differently. It's like between being, you know, the passenger in a car and a driver. So, so if you take these three new projects that we have, right, in medicine and in cybersecurity and police, what are we doing there? You know, people invited us to participate, and in fact, Bill is a PI on two of them, because of our theoretical work, right? Um, it's because of the how we talk about the affordances of the digital. But once you actually get in those projects, you're dealing with academics who are either competency-based or have, you know, kind of very strict kind of outcomes or, you know, you're dealing with that tradition. So here we are again in these three spaces, trying to engage with people and demonstrate that, you know, you're not going to train policemen, you know, for the kind of complexities that are happening in America today unless they collaborate, unless they're peer-to-peer, unless they uh, shift the balance of agency and understand, uh, um, you know, who the citizens are. In and their police practice, not their, just their pedagogy. In their police yeah. practice and how they create teams for resolving problems, you know. The policeman can't solve every, it can't solve every circumstances. So, will be the traditional, again, the balance of agency, yeah. the traditional authority figure is the policeman. Well, how do, how do they become collaborators in communities which are uh, riven with all kinds of contradictions and tensions as opposed to enforcement officers, right? So th- that's the kind of moral agenda which hopefully if we can build a pedagogy, you know, what police training involves at the moment is a whole lot of people sitting in rows while there's a lecturer out the front telling them how to use a taser, right? So, you know, I mean, how do you actually... Um, remodel the social relations of the world by remodeling the social relations of learning. So it's a bit heartening that these projects have us, people like us, not just because it's us, but because they recognize there's something needed, right, in order to get to new learning in these domains, in order to address the fact that cybersecurity now is one of the kind of biggest uh, threats uh, to the world and to ordinary people, and that there's a shortage of people who are interested in being in cybersecurity, you know, except for the hackers and the, you know, the other people who are, you know, doing uh, criminal things, and that's growing, you know, the, a growing phenomenon. So it's become a domain of kind of social, yeah. social so, regulation. So it's yep. curious and interesting to us um, that what we have been talking about, about new learning, right, uh, is resonating uh, with these uh, crisis areas, you know, that yeah. require uh, to think differently. So we come up against those traditional views of the faculty involved, the traditional views of the students involved, but we kind of a little bit at a time try to influence into a, a direction uh, that might serve, you know, the, the population and the future uh, better. Because this is the... 
uh, always been our purpose is how do you make uh, how does meaning making and learning uh, enable the self you know to live better as well as everybody else yeah yeah oh, i mean uh, that, that 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 is a, that's a clear line in in your work and in your theory i can, i can see that i this is the best i have to come back to the question i was just about that though this is the best place i can uh, i can put it and uh i mean since you're meeting up with uh in your new learning even in police forces and in in universities and in all kinds of research with the traditional views as you're saying it would be interesting and it's a bit odd i would say as an american who lives in germany to be asking two australians who live in america <laughs> to put to put it this way but what would be your view and you have a comparative view for sure of uh, the receptiveness to innovation new techniques education changing in in america it's impossibly difficult right uh, because everywhere by the way everywhere. not just here but in america it, it's particularly difficult i have to say because it's viral you know innovation is viral right and it, it's it's also faddish viral and faddish everybody wants to do their own thing and then on the other hand they have high stakes testing which stop any real innovation and the high stakes testing is from you know from school all the way through to the university system and the the our contention has always been and that's why we came to america you have to address assessment and we started with you know when we got the first grant for scholar it was around the idea of assessing as you go right that's what nsf was interested in how do you assess as you go because if you can't do that then you're never going to break the traditional curriculum if the if the assessment the assessment regimes that exist which are for an old world not the new world you know um are a barrier to innovation so that's why we created a platform that revolutionized the way we addressed assessing and it is assessment as you go and the student gets get uh, gets it and the instructor gets it and the public can have it as well the one thing about america though unlike australia unfortunately for better or for worse is you know we've been able to we're in a research one university which is a great privilege um people come to us with research projects um we so the police and the cyber security and medical ones are more or less people that come to us um but also we then we get nsf grants we've had gates foundation grants we've had um uh Institute of Educational Sciences grants which is the US Department of Education much harder in Australia so yeah so we and we have these incredible graduate students so we have a whole amazing resource infrastructure where we can you know we've had millions of dollars worth of grants and we can build these things and we can try them out so one of the that's been one of the the great things about being in the US um to be quite frank so and look for better or for worse as well the US is the place of Apple Microsoft Google, you know, um and I could go on and on on Twitter and whatever. So, you know, it's been a place of great energy and innovation. And our university, by the way, um the first e-learning system um was built here. A system and called 24 Nobel Prize winners. Yeah. 24. Um, can you imagine yeah, that? Plato was built in 1959. <laughs> they started building in 1959 on the back of a big mainframe computer here. Um and the first web browser Mosaic was a student here who created it and goes on and on so just to be kind of in the and you know 
a mile from where we're now sitting or three miles from where we're now sitting is the world's biggest research computer. So one of the things is we've been able to work with the world, you know, amazing computer scientists. Um, so, you know, it's a kind of, again, a kind of a community environment which we couldn't have replicated in other places. So, you know, that's the peculiarity of America for us. Yes. The, I the, see. Okay. Lincoln's land-grant universities, you know, placing these universities right across America was the engine of its uh, creativity and productivity. And although it's fraying at the moment in some respects, it's still for us when we ended up at the U of I, we we were invited, we didn't apply to come here, but when we ended up here, you know, scholarship mattered, experimentation mattered, you know, um, uh, and and it wasn't just balancing budgets, although balancing budgets is creeping in as the, you know, kind of the main kind of impact. Uh, But nonetheless, you know, doing... Making breakthroughs, you know, is um, supported and encouraged and heralded. So let, let me say, um, <laughs> let me let me make a bit of a joke. Um, I, I call where we live here. I call it socialism with American characteristics, which is my homage to Deng Xiaoping. Deng Xiaoping, <laughs> you know, um, um, socialism with Chinese characteristics. So anyhow, socialism with American characteristics means this: you get off the plane at an airport, which the university owns, and it says, "Welcome to the University of Illinois." And you turn on your NPR and it's the university's radio station. And you turn on your NPR television and it's the university's television channel. And if you get on a bus and you are either a faculty member or a student, of course it's free, which it has to be. And our best doctoral students from around the world um, are cross-subsidised by the fees that other people pay. And because they're, they're employees of the University of Illinois, they get a fee waiver and they get paid to be here. So, you know, one of the things is we, and and by the way, we're now doing these grants for the federal government, right, which is, um, so, you know, this is just one of the great contradictions of America, the centre of capitalism, is that, um, you know, we we live in this other kind of, uh, maybe we'll call it a bubble of sorts, (laughs) but it's not a bad bubble. It's not a bad bubble. They're all around America. Yeah. They're not unique in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and these sites, you know, need to be protected and saved and, and, you know, you've got to allow, you know, creativity with experimentation and not just always performance indicators, you know. And we've got a picture uh, of President Lincoln in, in our, <laughs> as you move into, come into our house, someone did a lovely painting locally and we've got that painting up there. But Lincoln was the person who founded these land-grant universities, these public, these wonderful public spaces. Yes. So. You, you always take the long historical view, don't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, literally, we call it the Moral Act during Lincoln's presidency. Yeah, which, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I need to try your patience just for a moment because there is one, there, there is one um, topic which, again, for scholarly communications is interesting, and it is something that you've also covered, and it, and it clearly dovetails with what we've been talking about, and, and, and that's academic publishing. And I know that you've uh, talked about it as being either in crisis or on the brink of transformative change or both. And I wonder if just briefly um, we could uh, just sort of sketch out what it is that you think is, let's say, not meeting research requirements in that area and what is and what might be directions because their technology and affordances are just as central as anywhere else that you've been talking about. Okay, so... um Here's the dilemma in scholarly communication. And let me say we use Scholar as a uh, uh, academic publishing platform as well. And we have 
publish, we publish, we've published 25,000 peer-reviewed articles and books through the Scholar platform, through its predecessor, migrated now into Scholar, but now now in Scholar. Um, so the dilemma in academic publishing is this. You either have the giants like Elsevier, which is, um, just to take that example, probably the most profitable large business in the world, makes 30% profit on sales, which no other business does, and charges $20,000 a year for a subscription to one journal cell, right? Just as an example. So you've got, and what they, what they, what they are is they're hoarders of the world's intellectual property who then charge a lot of money for it and return very little money. They charge the author money too. Oh, well, they're beginning to charge the author money around the hybrid model, but, but, but they fund editors in some journals and not hugely generously and they make a huge profit. So on the one hand, we have the scandal of commercial academic publishing. On the other hand, we have open access publishing, which is a scandal of a different kind. And the different kind is we are going to, in a parasitical way, expect that you do this work for nothing, right, which is you be your own editor, manage your own website, Open Journal Systems is the um, the principal open source um, journal publishing platform. So you might get over, you might download it, but you've got to put it on your own server, you've got to maintain it yourself, you've got to do all the peer reviewing, you've got to do fix people's spelling errors when they don't have English as the first language. And what it does, it offloads onto uh, fr- the world of free labour, knowledge work, um, uh, un, you know, unpaid work which would otherwise have happened in Elsevier with people who are quite well paid. So this is the devil in the deep blue sea. This is a real problem, this bifurcation. And by the way, I am as critical of the open access space as I am of the uh, the commercial space because it's just simply valuing uh, publishing work in the knowledge in 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 the knowledge industry that is publishing. Right? It's valuing it at nothing which is you do it on top of your ordinary job. You know, you're an academic, you've got to teach, you've got to research. Well, on top of that, we're going to have you as a copy editor as well and then managing websites and all that other kind so of stuff. So getting to market. So, um, so um, there's a dilemma in the sense that a lot of the so-called knowledge economy is premised on the fact people are going to do a lot of work and get nothing for it. And they've got to, you know, my argument is um, the minute that um, hydrocarbons and mortgages are free, we can make knowledge free as well. Right, but let's wait. I want hydrocarbons and, and mortgages to be free first. Hydrocarbons and housing. Um, so that's the dilemma. Now, also what the we what we should be the issue of you know Elsevier giving you the stamp of quality when in fact they operate more as a gatekeeper right. than than a quality check. Right, right. <laughs> okay. So what we tried to do with Common Ground is build an environment. And by the way, we operate in um, uh, English and Spanish, so we have about you know, a quarter of our journals are in Spanish. Um, and we've just actually, we're just now beginning our first multimodal journal in Portuguese. So it's a multilingual platform. It can happen in any, any language. Um, so what we're doing is we're aiming to build a model which is, you know, if you like, a, sustain, a sustainable model uh, where there needs to be revenue of various kinds. That revenue can be um, from journal subscriptions, but we try and make them modest because, you know, Elsevier is, to put it bluntly, immodest in its charges. Um, uh, we have a, a small-ish staff of people who, in the nature of publishing, don't get paid hugely well. They do it for the, the love of it rather than the money. So we've actually got about 15 or 20 people working in Common Ground managing this process. 
Um, and we have a membership model where you get certain benefits. If you are a member, you get subscription to stuff, and we try and keep that relatively um, for each of our 24 research networks that we have at the moment, we try and keep the membership model relatively low. And what that membership allows you to do is to submit papers for peer review. So it's effectively what's called these days hybrid open access, which is, uh, but we're trying to make it reasonably cost, reasonably costed, which is, you know, for if you want your work to be open access, there's a modest fee. Otherwise, we have a journal subscription model for libraries. Um, so what we've been doing is struggling with the business model of how you create sustainable knowledge work in this digital environment. Um, uh, so that's really, that's a quick summary of what we've been trying to do with Common Ground. Okay. All right. Well, um, you've been very generous with your time. And I do, though, have uh, one last question that I'd like to uh, put you away. And... As a bit of a, let's say, summary view backwards and also whatever occurs to you uh, now when I ask it, uh, what, in your both of your opinions, is the one thing in education today that's staring us all in the face, but we just can't seem to see it? <laughs> oh, all of the above. <laughs> well, I, I, did, I did say it earlier, and I'll say it again. There are two components. If you're going to talk about all balance of agency, collaboration. One issue is diversity, right? That every le every learning environment, people come with different backgrounds, different expectations, different ideas, and uh, inequalities in that space. So we have to grapple with that diversity and what it means, right, in any learning environment. How do we harness what people bring, right? So that is staring us in the face. We have failed abysmally. Right, because our systems are all geared towards reproducing inequalities, right, rather than um, uh, eliminating them. You know, we not succeeded. So, how do we address that in with adults and with uh, learners, uh, children? That's that's one. The other one is, you know, the affordances of the digital. Right, it's staring us in the face. What are the affordances of the digital? for enhancing the values we have in education that we have not been able to meet in traditional architectures, you know, the closed, uh, the four walls of a room, the, uh, the, the textbook, the test, the one teacher, 30 uh, uh, learners. You know, that architecture, right, that architecture cannot produce and can't even deal with the diversity issue can't deal with a diversity issue either. So those two things are staring us in the face. How do we address the populations that uh, are in our uh, learning ecologies and harness them in their difference and aim for uh, e uh, equal, if it's not equal opportunities as well as equal outcomes for them? And on the other hand, how can we use the affordances of the digital to that end? So just to kind of reiterate that exact point this the issues of diversity and technology are absolutely integrally related so if the technologies of traditional pedagogy which get then fossilized in the first generation of e-learning technologies um the, the, they are fundamentally architectures of sameness we're all going to be on the same page at the same time we're all going to listen to the same um video and give the give the right answers um we're going to absorb the knowledge we're given and we're going to become uh, like 
we're going to become that knowledge. You know, we're all going to become it in the same way. So it's about stamping uniformity on the world. But the minute you, you rebalance agency, what you immediately hear is a whole lot of voices. You hear people's different life experiences. You hear the con conflicts that go on between different groups in society. You hear different perspectives. So the minute you open up agency um, in any way at all, um, diversity immediately becomes visible and the, the, the discussion changes. It's a different discussion. You know, well, perhaps it might be this, perhaps it might be that. Let's think this through. It becomes a critical discussion. It becomes an engaged discussion, dynamic, capable of moving in a way that these other forms are, are, are just, if you like, you know, stamping uniformity and stamping conformity on people. So I think those things are integrally related. And one of the lessons of uh, new media is you know, we're not all reading the same darn newspaper and watching the, one of the four television channels like we used to, broadcast media. You know, that in fact, for better or for worse, in these new media environments, you know, everybody's feed is different. Narrowcasting is the word that I used before instead of broadcasting uh, because we've customised those feeds. So what happens is this is a world of polyvalent voices and we need to use these technologies in the same way that social media has to bring the polyvalent um, voices to into education. But not to keep people divided. Like even if you take something like vaccines at the moment, I mean, you know, you can go into a classroom if you wanted to and and, and uh, talk about the value of vaccines, you know, through history. And there'd be people in there who might not believe that. And if you open voice, that can come together. But it's not about keeping separate but really engaging around uh, what it means for individuals to make choices, what it means for society when you make one choice and not another choice. So the collaborative peer-to-peer -peer is really critical. So you, it's not just simply about people coming in and but the power, relativist. The power of that is uh, the phrase we use is productive diversity. Yes. It's not diversity where I'm having a quota enforced on me or affirmative actions typecasting me in some kind of way. Um, it's about productive diversity, where the, the dialogue that's possible is productive and produces, you know, produce, gener generative, produces new right. knowledge, produces uh, human progress. And humanity, you know, sociality is something we should all be interested in, not just, you know, as a theoretical kind of idea or a religious idea even, but as a practical lived reality. Well, okay. <laughs> Thank you very much. And um, that is uh, Bill Cope and Mary Kalanzis, creators of the website New Learning Online and also professors at the College of Education, University of Illinois. You can hear more from Bill and Mary in the interview they gave me right here at Scholarly Communication. We talk about their magnum opus, Ma Making Sense and Adding Sense. Have a listen. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Bill and Mary. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you, Daniel. Daniel thanks very much. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye until next time here at Scholarly Communication.